Have you ever seen a war movie where the bullets start flying and there's some soldier crouching behind something and his buddy's like, come on, we got to go. And he says this line. It's in like every movie. He goes, I didn't sign up for this. Even though like they gave you a gun and a helmet and a thing of bullets and sent you out into a battle, that's exactly what you signed up for. And it always makes me laugh because it's supposed to make you think, oh, no, it's, it's dangerous. It's like, uh, no, that's exactly what you signed up for, pal. And it's not like when you, how many of you guys bought something online for Christmas and now you've been getting emails every other day from whatever website you buy? Yeah, you're all nodding. This is great. And you got to go down to the bottom and click a button that they hide really, really small font that says unsubscribe. Because what? You didn't sign up for that. <laughs> and they say, okay, well, would you just like to receive weekly emails then? It's like, no, please stop sending me emails. I didn't sign up for this. And you know, the devil is a liar. That's, that's what he does. He's the father of lies. And he comes in and he promises us the world. He is unscrupulous. He'll, he is the worst used car salesman you've ever heard of in your life. No, it's fine. And it'll drive as long as you need it to. And it'll haul whatever you need it to. And then you get into what he get, tries to get you into. And it's not quite what he made it out to be, is it? And the devil is snarky and sarcastic and will then come and start to mock and you know, there's that, that scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, right, where the, the kid Edmund meets the witch in the woods, and she's telling him, I'll make you king, and I'll give you lots of candy, and it's going to be wonderful. And he sells out his family, and, and at least in the newer movie, there's a scene that always kind of shivers my spine a little bit, where no longer is he getting candy and getting hot chocolate and whatever else in the woods, but he's now tied up to a tree in the camp, and then the dwarf comes over and starts making fun of him, and he says, is the prince comfortable? Right? Isn't this what you wanted? You want me to fluff your pillow for you? And it's, it's like that character has been kind of comic relief up to that point. But now all of a sudden it's really intimidating and fearful because he took the bait. He took the bait and that wasn't what he signed up for, but the devil had a hook in the bait. But you know what the good news is? God doesn't do that to us. Aren't you glad? We never follow the Lord and he says, it's going to be great. Everything's going to be wonderful and you'll never have a problem again. And then something happens and you go, I didn't sign up for this. If you do, someone may have lied to you along the way. But God wants us to go into his service with both eyes open. There were folks that we saw in the book of Luke that came up to Jesus. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. He says, are you sure? Because foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you sure you can handle that? Lord, what must I do to be saved? Sell all that you have and come and follow me. We talked about that, right? How it was almost funny that Jesus tried to stiff arm people a couple times when they came to follow him because he wanted to make sure that they were serious and they were willing to endure the suffering. And in case there's ever been any confusion in your life, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's your daily bread promise of the day. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When you become a Christian, you have not enrolled in a book club. You have enlisted in an army. You've put on the uniform and you've gone out into the battlefield. So when people start shooting at you, you don't say, I didn't sign up for this. Yes, you did. And now sometimes you can get into a standoff with the enemy. It's, it's like if you've seen those old Civil War movies where the line is right there and there's Johnny Reb and there's Billy Yank and they're just kind of chatting and they're, you know, swapping stuff. Hey, do you have any tobacco? Sure. Do you have any Band-Aids? And you know, they're trading and it's nice. But the minute the, the battle commences, that's all gone. And the devil will try and get you into that standoff where he's like, you stay on your side. I'll stay on my side. 
We understand each other. I won't move if you don't move. But if you start to escalate your walk with the Lord, if you decide, no, I'm not going to be halfway anymore. I'm going to commit to Jesus. I'm going to know that Bible. I'm going to pray like I ought to pray. I'm going to share the gospel at work. The devil will escalate also. And the pressure will intensify. And this is exactly what's going to happen in this passage today. We saw before where they brought the apostles in, Peter and John, and they tried to scare them, basically, and intimidate them and send them away. Well, now they're going to meet these people again. This is the second time they've encountered them. And it's going to get worse. But the good news of this passage, and we're going to get right into it, is that the enemy has no power to overcome the church. God's people will never be defeated if they never give up. And you need to know that it's a battle so that you don't give up when you get into it. You say, this is exactly what I should have expected. Let's keep going. And that's what the apostles did. That's what they're going to show us today. We're going to start in verse 12 and read down to verse 16. This is another one of Luke's summaries. We've seen a ton of these in the book of Acts. He just kind of summarizes where things are. It's sort of like in the movie, everything gets all wobbly and the harp, and it kind of jumps ahead in time a little bit. This is what this is. Verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." Pretty cool stuff, isn't it? You'll remember back in chapter 4, verse 30, after they'd been arrested, the church specifically prayed for the Lord to validate the gospel with signs and wonders. Do you remember this? They said, we're going to preach. We're going to be bold. Lord, would you come behind us and support our preaching by validating it, by stretching out your hand to heal? And this is the answer to that prayer. And last thing we saw was Ananias and Sapphira had been struck dead in the church. So there's a little bit of intimidation surrounding the church now. You see that in verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. This is actually a little confusing in the original and maybe your translation too. When it says none of the rest, some people will, will say, now what that means is the rest of the church was too scared to join the apostles in the temple. That doesn't seem right based on what we know from this passage. It seems more likely what happened is anybody that was just showing up to see what was going on, that stopped. <laughs> the seekers, as you say. There were no more seekers. There were no more curious people. It was only the believers that were showing up because they said, people are getting struck dead. I'm not showing up there. I don't really worship that God. I'm not messing around with the Holy Spirit. And this is a, a very brief lesson for us. I think this, this teaches us that the church primarily is for the Christian, and it sounds silly to say that, but we, we kind of have a cultural background where everybody had to go to church. That was the law, actually, for a long time. You had to go. And so the church was where the gospel was presented and was where the evangelism was done. But I think it's more clear in Scripture, and this is certainly the model that we're following, that the church as a gathering is where the saints come together to be equipped, to be encouraged, to be instructed, 
and then to go out, Ephesians chapter 4, and do the work of ministry. Because you see, no one else is joining them. There's no unsaved person coming to church, and yet multitudes are coming to the Lord. How is that possible? Because the church was going out, and they were sharing the gospel, and they were taking it to their workplace, and to their families, and their neighborhoods. They were taking it out. It wasn't just the apostles' job to do that. It was the apostles' job to get them ready so that when they went out, they took the gospel with them. It's pretty cool. And miracles are increasing. Look at this. Even Peter's shadow was healing people. Peter was walking down the road, and people were taking their kids or their grandma or their husband or wife. And remember, they're scared now. They don't want to be directly involved with these people. That's that guy that told the lady she was going to die, and then she died. But you know what? He heals people. So maybe if we can just kind of lean out and touch his shadow as he walks by. It reminds us of the woman in Luke chapter 8 who had the issue of blood, and she reached out and just touched Jesus' robe, and that was enough. Remember? And Jesus stops and goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who touched me? Somebody touched me. And Peter's like, there's a whole crowd around you. And she's sitting there, oh, I've done it now. I've done it now. And the Lord said, your faith has made you well. There's no formula to the Lord working in somebody's life. Right? And, and there's so many stories in the Bible of miracles happening. Some of them are very strange. Remember when Jesus spit in the dirt and made mud and rubbed it in some guy's eyes? And then he said, go wash your eyes. And he was healed. You guys would be very, very freaked out if I did that someday. <laughs> there's the story where I, I believe it was Elijah where the, the son of the woman died and he goes up and stretches himself out on the boy seven times after he died and he came back from the dead. You'd be like, what are you doing? No, 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 don't do that. No, please, no, that's crazy. There are times where fire was called down from heaven. There are other times where it just, it just changed. They just picked up the lame man and he could walk. There was no thunder, there was no lightning, there was nothing strange. Sometimes they touched Peter's shadow and the shadow was enough. Sometimes Jesus prayed for a guy and he had to pray for him again. Sometimes there was a demon involved. Sometimes there wasn't. Because I think when you're seeing miracles happen, it's when spiritual warfare is intersecting with the physical world. And you should expect that it's going to be a little strange. It's awesome in that, that sense of awe when it's made manifest. And that's just a, a good reminder for us that if we start setting up all these walls and barriers and saying, God can't do this, he won't do this, we're not going to allow that, you need to be careful because the threshold for what God does in the Bible is, is pretty high. Well, we're only going to do things that the Bible says, that the Bible gives us an example to do. Okay, well, God told Ezekiel to cook his meals over cow dung every day. <laughs> Cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, so was this. This was next to godliness too. Just to remind us that we need to be flexible when the Lord starts pouring out that new wine. And this does not mean that we chase after weird because weird is godly. That's not what that means. That means you need to know the Lord so that even if he does want to do something that is a little odd to our eyes, we're willing to go with it because we trust him. John 14, 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. He's saying, I'm going to be sitting in the, in the captain's chair. I'm going to be the offensive coordinator. So you're going to even do more and greater things than I did. Jesus' shadow never healed anybody. Peter's did. And that's not somehow offensive to Jesus. That's wonderful. Because Jesus is still at work through the apostles and through the whole church. And I think this is a good reminder. We've talked about this a lot, so I don't want to hammer it too much. But 
the, the Lord is showing us through the early church, and while this was a special time of revival and all the rest, all the obligatory disclaimers, the Lord intended his church to be a place where miracles are happening. This does not place the responsibility upon you to go out and be a, a voodoo witch doctor and make things happen, but it means that we need to have faith that what the Lord wants to do can stretch into the miraculous and that it's something that we expect and that we look for and that we're not afraid to ask for. I can tell you in my life and like the last month, I've seen like a dozen cases of medical diagnoses that have come back surprisingly negative. It's, it's been the strangest thing. Where like I've had five different people or however many come to me and say, hey, pray for so-and-so. They're about to go into the doctor and it doesn't look good. It looks like there's going to there's gonna be cancer. It looks like there's going to be this. There's going to be that. And then we pray and ah, it was nothing. And the Lord has reminded me, hey, those count. <laughs> those count. You didn't know. You don't know what the Lord did. The doctor said, oh, false alarm. But the Lord is working in my life anyway. I can say God still answers prayer. And, you know, Calvary Chapel as, a, as an organization and us here as a church, we're a word church. We study the Bible. That is like our, our bread and butter. It's the primary thing we do. And there are those that will say, well, because we believe the word, we want to watch out for all this other stuff, and I don't want to prioritize that too much. But it's the word that teaches us the importance of that stuff. If we truly believe the Bible, if we truly believe that the book of Acts is setting us an example, then we ought to be praying like they prayed in Acts chapter 4, which says, Lord, as we boldly proclaim your word, would you stretch out your hand to heal and validate it? And then when the opportunities arise, not just to cringe and hope that everything goes okay until it's over, but to say, all right, this is what we prayed for. This is what God showed us. Let's step out and let's keep going in faith. Full of active, insistent faith. Lord, you said, read through the Psalms every now and then. Lord, you said, <laughs> it's like, David, careful, man. This is God. No, Lord, you said to do this. And here I am. So you need to step up and do your thing, Lord. We kind of go, okay, God's going to do whatever he wants to do. Well, the Lord put a bunch of examples in there in the Bible and said, hey, Call me on what I said. I love it when my people do that. So let, let's remember that because what was causing multitudes upon multitudes to come to salvation was these miracles. And I don't think that we ever want to say that that is the only way that God can do it, but I do think that it reminds us that something can be missing in our churches if we're not careful. By the way, he says multitudes of men and women. You're never going to see a number attached to the church in the book of Acts ever again, at least in Jerusalem. Luke just lost track. I don't know. It was tons of people. <laughs> multitudes and multitudes of people. And they're getting saved and people are being healed and they're coming from outside the city. And now, as I said, they're escalating. They're pressing their advantage. Now the enemy is going to press his advantage. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy... They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, I love this, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. 
And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. I love that story. It's sort of like the book of Esther, where the Lord just shows his, his sense of humor a little bit. We saw in the previous verses, the church is escalating the battle. They're invading Satan's territory. They're bringing souls back. And now he's going to try and do the same to them. We see that the Sadducees and the priests are the ringleaders here. In the Gospels, it was the Pharisees that Jesus clashed with the most. This is the other party, the Sadducees. They're a little different. We've talked about the difference before. But in the book of Acts, you're actually going to see a lot of Pharisees become Christians. You're going to see more sympathy, even in this passage, with the Pharisees to the Christians. And a Pharisee is going to write most of the New Testament. His name is Paul the Apostle. At this time, he was called Saul of Tarsus. And you, you, you can understand why that the Pharisees, they truly did, in a lot of cases, want to serve the Lord. They wanted to get the word right. They believed in the coming of the Messiah. They believed in prophecy. They believed in miracles. They believed in angels. Sadducees didn't believe in any of that stuff. They were essentially a political force existing to preserve their own power and their own country. Now you'll see it is jealousy that motivates them, just like it was with Jesus. And they arrest them and place them in a public prison. So this is not, don't think like each one is in their own individual cell. This is like a big open courtyard with gates where they throw all the prisoners in at the same time. So they're throwing these apostles, these men of God, into prison with these common criminals. Who knows what kind of men would have been there, but I imagine there was some preaching going on when they got into that public prison. They're also probably putting them there so that everybody can see that the apostles were put into prison. But this time, the Lord sends an angel to let them out. This is the first of three miraculous escapes from prison we're going to see in the book of Acts. does not happen every time. It happens according to the Lord's good pleasure. And the angel lets them out and says, now go back and preach in the temple. You might have thought the angel would say, now leave, go back to Galilee where they can't find you. He says, go back to the temple where they can find you. And the next morning, let's get this picture. The Sanhedrin comes in, 70 of the most wealthy and influential men in all of Israel. They come and they gather together. They would sit in this big circle. They sit down. They've got their turbans. They've got their robes. Are we ready? We're ready. All right. Send in the prisoners. And the guard goes to the jail and says, all right, where are the apostles? I don't know. Where are they? Where are they? All right, everybody line up, roll call. They're counting. They're not here. All right, well, who's going to? I'm not going to tell them. You go tell them. And then the Sadducees are waiting. And what's taking so long? We don't know where they are. What do you mean you don't know where they are? We put, didn't you put them in the prison? We did. Wasn't it the public prison where everyone could see? Yes. Well, somebody had to see. Were the guards asleep? No, no, they weren't. And then someone down to the other end of the, what's happening? What's taking so long? Just hold on for a second. We've got to figure this out. And finally, they send them scouring out to go look for the apostles. And somebody says, they're in the temple. What are they doing there? Preaching. Now, you got to picture this. The temple complex was huge. On the east side, you had Solomon's portico, which is where they would preach every time. On the west side, you had this chamber of the Sanhedrin. So they're looking all over the place for them, and they're right over there. <laughs> he says, well, go out and bring them. And there's a big crowd of people gathered to see them. And then the temple guard shows up and says, hey, would you mind coming with us, please? <laughs> And then they lead them in. They're not bound. They're not manacled. They walk right into that. Isn't that awesome? With all their pomp and ceremony, the Sanhedrin are made to look foolish. It reminds me in John chapter 18. Do you remember this? Where Judas brings all of the guards and the soldiers to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And he says, I am he. And in the Aramaic or the Hebrew, whatever he was speaking, that would have been the name of God that he gave to Moses. I am. And it says all the soldiers fell over backwards. <laughs> well, I'm looking for Jesus. I'm Jesus. Boom, they all fall over. Then they all get up and they're, oh, and I, Jesus is like, you guys okay? Yeah. Well, who are you looking for again? Jesus of Nazareth? I told you, I am. I'll go with you. I'll go quietly. And it's, it's in both cases. It's the Lord's way of saying, I'm going to let you take my son or my sons, but this is all under my control. Who's in, who's in charge here? It's the Lord. I'm only giving you them because I'm allowing it. Remember Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. You ever see one of those Australian lizards that frills its neck out and hisses when it gets angry? This is what the devil is doing here. Like that thing from Jurassic Park, right? the, the, the big neck that frills out and it howls and screams. And He's trying to intimidate them again. But the Lord makes them look foolish. I found something. So there's something you're supposed to do with little babies. You all probably know this, that if they cry and they can't catch their breath, you know, they can pass out. So sometimes you've got to blow in their face a little bit because it causes them to catch their breath. I found there was another use for that. When your baby turns into a frill neck lizard and is ah, yelling at you, if you just do that, they go, ah, and they stagger back and all of a sudden they look ridiculous. And you remind them, hey, you can scream all you want. You remember who's the boss. This is kind of what the Lord is doing. They're showing up looking all tough and the Lord like flicks them in the back of the head. He says, Don't you forget, I'm the one in charge here. He's also sending a message to the apostles. Yeah, this is going to be a rough day, but I, I'm still in control. I'm still Lord. And you know what else is really hilarious about this story? The Sadducees did not believe in miracles or angels. <laughs> and so the Lord does a miracle by means of an angel before they go on trial before the Sadducees. When you step up to combat sin and darkness in your life, when you say, you know what, this relationship is no good, we've got to fix it. When you say, I've had this habit for so long and it's time for it to be done. Or I have not been managing my finances the way God wants me to. We're going to change this. The devil is going to rattle his saber. He's going to step up. He's going to fire a warning shot. Don't you do it. But God is the one on the throne. He has all power. We threw them in prison. Yeah, I opened the gates. But if you still want to put them on trial, here you go. I'll let you have them. I'll let you do this. The Lord is in control. And we're going to see the apostles are going to suffer this day. But it's all according to his plan. And it's under his control. And Satan can boast against the Lord. But it's an empty boast. Because God is the one who's in control. All the horrible things Satan did to Job. He had to go to the Lord and ask permission. Like he's a child asking for a hall pass to go to the bathroom. Hey, if you touch Job, his body, then he'll, he'll deny you. So would it be alright if I please touched his body. The Lord is in control. There's no even match between Satan and the Lord. Well, now they're, they're there. They're finally there. They were asked politely to come by the temple guard. And then here we get to verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, underline this one, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So they're now in this big dignified scene. Dignity is a little diminished. They're trying to recover their, <laughs> their pride here. And they begin the interrogation. And what you're going to see, and this is always the devil's trick, he is going to try and bring the apostles off of a spiritual level, down onto a material level. He's going to try and take them off of the foundation of the gospel and start talking politics. And this is, this is key because the devil does this to us too. But here's the accusation. He says, first of all, we strictly commanded. This is great. This is in uh, what's called an Aramaism. It comes from the word Aramaic. And what that means is while this is written in Greek, it's translating an idiom from a different language. So, you know, you, you learn slang in a different language. It doesn't really translate. But what this literally says word for word is, we commanded you commands not to do this. And, and you see this in the Old Testament a lot, right? I have loved you with an everlasting love. It's called a cognate accusative, if you care to, to know what it's actually called technically. It doesn't matter. The point is that this is not something that some Greek made up a couple hundred years later. This is how they talked. And it's very, very cool to see because remember Luke and the Gospel of Luke, and I would assume in the book of Acts too, he's gathering all these stories and bringing them together. And, uh, you know, he's getting the accents right even, which is just sort of cool. And it's also kind of fun. We commanded you a commandment not to do this. And that's kind of how you know that even though this was written in Greek, it, these are people who are from Israel, of course, the Holy Land. Well, let's keep going. He says, we commanded you these commandments, and he gives them what he says is their motive. This is it. Is you're trying to bring the blood of this man down upon us. Notice he doesn't even use the name Jesus. He just says some guy that we killed. He says, you're preaching, and here's the reason you're preaching. Because you're trying to overthrow our authority by making the people so mad that we put this guy to death. You're trying to stir up the people just like any other rebellion. Now, is that what they're doing? Of course not. Of course not. But this is how the devil works. He comes in and accuses you of something, or maybe someone who is, is in your life, they accuse you of something you never even thought of doing before. So now all of a sudden you're defending yourself against an accusation that has no basis in reality. You're trying to stir the people up against us. Now Peter could have gone, whoa, 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 slow down. That's not what we're doing. No, 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 look, we respect your authority. We respect that you deserve to be there. Look, look, this is just a big misunderstanding. That's what the goal is here, to take them off that foundation. Because they, they know what's up. They know what these people are here. This is jealousy. This isn't a, a serious accusation. Remember in the book of Luke how Jesus never responded to an accusation with a hidden agenda? Somebody came up to Jesus and there was something behind it. He never answered those questions. When they came and said, where did your authority come from? And Jesus said, well, where do you think John's authority came from? Uh, we don't know. <laughs> I'm not answering you. I'm not having this conversation. And Peter is going to exercise the same discernment here. And this is what the devil will do. This is, this is an important thing to look. The devil will talk to you when you start to escalate your spiritual life. You start moving forward. You could even think of it as your old self. Well, we'll come in and try to have a conversation with you as if you had cut a deal at some point. You ever have a boss or a coach, or a friend even, where you give a hard no on something. No, I'm not doing that. This is not going to happen. And then they come up, and then they want to have the conversation again, as if it's still open for discussion. You ever know somebody like that? This is how Satan works. They said, we must preach in the name of Jesus. We cannot say anything other than what we've seen and heard. 
And he brings them back in and he says, come on, guys, I thought we had a deal. I thought you weren't going to preach in this name anymore. They had no deal. They hadn't agreed to that. But they bring them in like their buddies trying to have this, this relitigation of a decision that's already been made. And we can fall for that if we're not careful. Where you determine that this is what you're going to do in your life. And then now the temptation comes. Okay, look, I know we were excited a week ago, but what are we, come on, what are we really going to do? We're not going to do all that, are we? Can we? Let's just compromise here. Even though you've already made the decision and it's not up for discussion again. You say that to your kids, right? We've already talked about that. We're not talking about it again. My dad used to say that all the time to me. We're not having this discussion again. He's like, you're not going to get in here and wear me down. The example I think that is great here is, is in Daniel chapter 3 where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to bow down to the golden statue, remember? And then they wouldn't, and Nebuchadnezzar got so angry, and he brought them for him. And in Daniel 3, he says, you will bow down. I'm going to give you one last chance. You're going to worship this statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. (laughs) You know what we're going to say. There's no need. We're not having this conversation. We, this is nothing personal, but he says, look, we're not, we're not talking about this with you. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if he doesn't, be it known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Isn't that awesome? He, they take it right out of the physical and right back to the spiritual. We're not having a discussion about loyalty and bowing down. The discussion is we serve the Lord and we're not serving anybody else. And this is what Peter does. He, he, they, they bring this political thing into it. You're trying to bring them, this man's blood down on us. And Peter says it's not about that. It's about repentance and forgiveness of sins. He answers them on a spiritual plane. Because he knows that the church's place is not out there in, in, the, in that public scene. It's in the souls and the hearts of men. And he answers the accusation, first of all, by saying, when it comes to this thing, we don't answer to you. There's no need for us to answer you, O king, O Sanhedrin, O boss, O president, or whatever it is. We, we, don't, we don't discuss this. We must obey God rather than man. And he also reminds them, look, you did kill this man. Talk about your, the blood being brought on them. You did kill this man. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, it says, any man who is hanged on a tree whether that's hanged by the neck or crucified or impaled, which is another way they used to kill people back then. Jesus said that man is cursed. It was supposed to be like the worst form of death you could experience. And they had Jesus crucified. Remember how Pilate reacted when they asked for that? Like, what do you want me to do? Crucify him. Like, crucify? Are you, are you crazy? What has he done to be, even if we're going to kill him, we're going to crucify this man? And in Matthew 27, remember when Pilate washed his hands? He said, I am innocent of the blood of this man. Matthew 27, 25. These people here in this council had responded, his blood be on us and on our children. A few months ago, y'all were perfectly willing to have the blood of Jesus on your hands. Now all of a sudden it's become politically inexpedient for that. And now you want to get it off. That's not how it works. All these people can think about is power. They can't think about anything in terms of reality. They're not thinking miracles are happening. Maybe there's something to this. They're not thinking the people are worshiping God like they never before. And they're coming to the temple in droves like they never were before. Maybe there's something to this. All they can think about is this is threatening our power and our authority. And Peter comes in and they try to put him on their level because they can't think on any other level. They think, we know what you're up to. 
You're trying to stage a rebellion, and you're trying to make a power play. And Peter's like, where did you get that from? That's not how we think. That's not how we operate. That's not how we live. That's how you live. We are only interested in two things, repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's what we're all about. He says, we've got a higher calling than politics. We're out for the redemption of Israel. He says, and we saw what God did. God is reaching out to save his people, and we witnessed it. We can't be silent, and the Holy Spirit is even testifying along. Listen, guys, don't get involved in a back and forth with somebody that's trying to dampen your enthusiasm for the Lord. That's not a conversation you have. There's no need for us to answer you, O king, or whoever. We're not, we're not doing this. I must obey God rather than man. We don't cut deals. We don't ease up to make friends. They could have probably, if they had been willing to grovel a little bit, and say, oh, look, Sanhedrin, we, we respect your authority. We know you're great people. We'll, look, we'll preach, but we're not going to preach against you. We'll, we'll ease off on the blood of Jesus stuff. We'll just, we'll, we'll just teach virtue. That's what you want, right? You just want the virtues that we all can agree on. That's what you want us to do, correct? They didn't do that. They said, no, you have zero say in what we preach. That's important, isn't it? This is heaven and hell. We can't be silent about this stuff. And I'll tell you all, while this has never happened to us directly, there is a ton of social pressure on the church right now to be silent on some stuff. Nobody ever wants you to be silent on the gospel. They're, they're too slick for that. They're too smart. They, they knew, they, people who want to shut up the church, they know that if they come out and they want to outlaw preaching in the name of Jesus or outlaw preaching the cross, they know that you would see instant revival in 50 states. <laughs> so they don't do that. What, what do they do? They take what most people see as a side issue and they try and get their foot in the door a little bit to now we're listening to them on what to preach. And what's the big example? The big example is what the Bible teaches about sexuality and marriage and gender kind of silly that we even have to have this discussion. But there are people that will tell you, you are oppressing people, you're abusing people. When you teach what the Bible says, that sex is for marriage and marriage is between a man and a woman, and that God created the male and female, you can't teach it. That's offensive. We're not going to let you preach it on the radio. We're not going to put it on TV. And if, you, if someone comes into your church, this is something they're dealing with out in California. They're trying to pass all these laws that if somebody comes in and their child is struggling with their, their sexuality, and you bring them into a youth counselor, and the counselor says, no, you, you, this is what the Bible says, there are folks that want them to go to jail for that. Now, that, that law was defeated, but guess what? There's going to be another one tomorrow. There's going to be another one five years from now. And if that issue dies, another one's going to come up because the world is always wanting to come in and have its finger in what the church does. And I, I remember talking to a guy that's like, who cares about this, really? It's such a side issue. Why does it matter? Here's why it matters, because there are people that are going to hell without Jesus. And if the sin that they are caught up in, we're not allowed to preach about, you've got a whole group of people that will never be told that they must repent. You're telling us to stop preaching repentance. Oh, you're just exaggerating. Yeah, well, it's best to catch it before it grows too big, isn't it? When there's people whose eternity is in jeopardy, how can we be silent? That's what Peter is saying. And it's the same for us here. In 50 years, it's going to be something else. Some other thing that the world is all hot and bothered about and they want us to be quiet. We can't do that. Because when we're grounded in the gospel, we win every time. But if you try and fight the battle on the enemy's turf, you're just going to get in trouble. And Peter's like, uh, I'm not talking about this with you. All we care about is the gospel. And he gives a little quick gospel pitch. I love that. <laughs> they always do this in the, in the gospel. They're like, we're talking about this. And they say, well, in answering that, let me tell you what Jesus did first. It's kind of this little roundabout way of sharing the gospel. It's so cool. 
Well, he did accuse them of crucifying Jesus, but he says, but the Lord exalted Jesus. You raised him up on a cross. God raised him up to his right hand. Well, now we get to verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the day of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. The council is enraged. That's the ESV. The language there is they were diaprio, which is they were sawn in half or they were cut. This is where we get that translation, cut to the heart. It ripped them open. We talk like that sometimes, right? If you hear a strong message or a great preacher and you say, ah, oh, that just ripped me wide open. They were ripped wide open. We saw this in Acts chapter 2. They were cut to the heart. And they said, gentlemen, what must we do to be saved? These men were cut to the heart and went the other way. Kill them. Put them to death. I don't ever want to hear that message again. To some it is a fragrance of life to life. To some it is a fragrance of death to death. The devil flips quick when he's rebuffed, doesn't he? All of a sudden, he's your buddy, he's your friend, let's have a talk, let's have a conversation. No, we're not doing this. And then the talons come out. Luckily, we meet this man, Gamaliel, who is of the opposite party, a Pharisee, and he calms the situation, sends the guys out, let's just calm down for a little bit, and he gives what was probably unwitting, but he gives essentially a prophecy over the church. Gamaliel was a great teacher of the law. We even historically know stuff about him. He was of the school of Hillel. Hillel was the, the more liberal of the Pharisaic schools, and by, by that I'm, I don't mean politically liberal as we think about it. I mean, you know, you had the, the Pharisees that were, if you scoot your chair back on the Sabbath day, you've plowed, and that's doing work. That, that's uber conservative. But he was the one that said, look, it's about loving people. And there's even a lot of things that Jesus said that people have said, that's very similar to some of the stuff Rabbi Hillel said. So, this is who Gamaliel is. He's from that school. And in fact, the Mishnah, which is traditional Jewish literature, it says that when Gamaliel died, quote, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. They saw him as the last great teacher of the law. And if, as far as we're concerned, the most interesting thing for us, Gamaliel at this time had a student named Saul of Tarsus, who we're going to meet in a few short chapters. We know him as Paul the Apostle. And he refers to these two rebellions. We really don't know anything about them historically. Everybody loves to speculate and think they know. It really doesn't matter. And that's actually kind of the point, that we don't know anything about them. It's like, yeah, there's, movements come, movements go. Things blow through, and then they blow over. So he's saying, best just to leave it alone. If this is going to cause trouble, it's better just to leave it alone. And that's what happens in history. You know, this is a good lesson for us, too, because we, we as a church even can panic with every wind, every wave that blows through, every strange idea that comes through. But the more you read through church history and even secular history, it just helps you just chill out a little bit. A hundred years ago, somebody set off a bomb on Wall Street. It was an anarchist. And anarchists were the biggest threat. And they wanted to tear down all government. Where are they now? 
probably haven't even heard of them until right now. It blows through. And it might be serious at the time, and there might be steps that need to be taken, but there, there is a good lesson that, look, stuff comes, stuff goes. And he's, this is what he thinks about the church. And he's so interesting, because there's no record of his salvation. He certainly was a noble man. And he makes a point that, look, if God is in this, you can't stop it. And if God's not in it, well, it's going to die anyway. <laughs> you know, I think about Gamaliel, and we don't know his, his story. We don't know if he was saved. I, I believe that it maybe is the Coptic Christian church in Egypt. I don't know. But there are some churches that actually say, call him Saint Gamaliel. They have traditions that he was saved later. I hope he was. That'd be awesome if he was. We don't have any record of it. The Bible doesn't say. But it's really unfortunate, and I'm just going to pause on this for a minute, that there are so many noble figures that come along and help the church and even fight for the church and champion things that we are on board with and we make common cause on certain issues. I wish they all could be saved. And we need to be careful that we don't start admiring them as the standard rather than the church because this is what can happen. You know, you've got somebody who's not in the church, but he's on our team. And so we start to get really excited. Oh, we got one. We got a celebrity. We got a professor. We got an athlete, whatever it is. We, they're on our team now. And you look at it closely, yeah, they're not really a, a believer, but they just, you know, they believe in something that we're into, or they want to defend our, our freedom of religion or whatever it is. In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, it says this. This is when Elijah had told Ahab, there's going to be no rain except at my command. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Good guy. When Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys, perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction and Obadiah went in another direction. And then when Obadiah finds Elijah, this is not the Obadiah from the book of Obadiah, it's a different guy. He kind of says to Elijah, what are you doing? Don't you understand what you've done? Don't you know how difficult you've made these things for us? Elijah was about to pray fire down from heaven. He was about to pray for rain that was going to come. Obadiah was in the service of the king looking for grass in the promised land. And I think I may be stretching it a little bit, but it's okay. Look, you get men like Gamaliel or men like Obadiah that they want to serve the Lord in a way, but they can't get outside of the world system. They can't think how to serve the Lord outside of what everybody else does. The best way Obadiah could have helped, I mean, he was saving the prophets, he was putting them away, that's great, but he should have been telling Ahab, you ought to repent. That's what's keeping this place from, uh, from, from the rain coming. This is why Elijah did this. He should have gone to Elijah and tried to help him. You're helping the prophets, why aren't you helping Elijah? He sees Elijah, he's like, Elijah, why did, you, why did you make things so difficult for us? And this is so hard for me to do this now. It's so hard to maintain a good testimony when Elijah knew we don't need a good testimony, we need national repentance is what we need. When you can't get outside of the way everybody else works, you can't think in that, dare we say, miraculous sphere where God works. That's where we've got to live. That's where we've got to be. All that being said, what Gamaliel said was very true. If God is in something, nothing can stop it. And here we are 2,000 years later. Listen, guys, if, if this so-called church, if God's in it, it, it'll last forever. If not, it'll die away. Well, here we are 2,000 years later, and I had to explain to you what a Sanhedrin was. And 
you can look around and see five churches from outside our window. The church is unstoppable because God is with us. How many tyrants and councils and mobs have tried to put the light of the gospel out and say these brash, brazen things? We're going to eliminate the gospel, the Bible, the name of Jesus from the world. It's all failed and all looks ridiculous now. And then people stand up in our generation and say the same thing and we go, oh no, what if he's right? He's not right. He's in a long line of people that have tried to shut up the church and have failed because God is in it, because God has determined to save souls and he's determined to use the church to do it. You know, they're, they're saying these things and in a few years there'll be persecution coming from Rome too. At the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, Emperor Constantine comes into this council with all the church leaders and he bowed down and kissed the feet of all these old martyrs who had had limbs cut off and had their, these scars from the torture they'd undergone during the persecution of, the, of Diocletian, the other Roman emperor. And now the current emperor comes in and is bowing down at their feet. You can't stop the church. You can't stop God's church. In Daniel chapter 2, do you remember that, that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? where he had the golden head and the silver shoulders and bronze and iron and then iron and clay and the feet. But then there was a rock that came out of nowhere and it struck the, the statue and it crumbled and then the rock just grew and grew until it became a mountain and covered the whole earth. That's the kingdom of God. That's what we're a part of. That the world sets up its empires and its powers and its authority and it's intimidating and it's scary, but the Lord will never be defeated. And they need to know this because they're about to endure something that might cause them to doubt that. The devil will grapple with the church. He doesn't always do words. If the devil can tempt you, he'll tempt you. But if he can't tempt you, he'll grab you by your neck and he'll try and force you down. But he can't win. And his time is coming, which should give you courage for your life. You press on. You keep going because you're going to win. And when the devil starts throwing things in your life and everything starts falling apart because of your walk with Jesus, you can have that defiance in your eye because you know, I can endure this. I can endure it for 50 years. I can endure it for 75, 80, 100 years because I'm going to be forever with Jesus. I can endure suffering. You know, and I think it's funny because when I was growing up, I heard people say all the time, the church is so dead in America. We need, a, we need persecution. We need this just to purify the church. Everyone said, oh, amen. And then a decade or two later, it's starting to look like that. It's becoming more and more real, and everybody's going, oh, no, no, I didn't mean it. <laughs> and I, I'm, I have no prophecy or word about what's going to happen. I don't know, but God does. But what if it were to happen? What if they were rounding us up? Let them round us up, because the Lord will never be defeated. Well, verse 40, it actually says the end of verse 39, they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. Three little words that have a whole lot behind it. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They were released, but first they were beaten. This is the Greek word darrow. It actually, and it's, it's used idiomatically here. Literally, it means to flay or to skin something. And they would say that when you got beaten like this, you were being skinned because the beating was so severe, it would rip the skin right off of you. This is uh, not, not the 
the flagellum, as they called it in, in the Romans, where they would put the glass and everything on it. This was a three-fold calf-hide whip, and they would each receive 39 lashes. You'd receive two-thirds on the back and one-third on the chest. You've all maybe seen The Passion of the Christ. Not quite as intense as that, but you get the idea. All 12 apostles are now going to shed the first blood, other than Jesus's, for the gospel. I wonder what was going through their head. They tie them up to these posts. I wonder if they went one at a time or if they did it all at once. I like to think they did it all at once. They're trying to make a point. They're tied up and they're, they take Peter and they strip his robe off and they're tying up his hands. And there's Matthew getting his tan, hands tied up. And Andrew is looking around and he's remembering that he was kind of the one that got them all into this mess because he was the first one, one of the first to find Jesus. And there's Matthias who was only just recently made an apostle and he's getting his robe pulled off. And there's the guy stretching out the whip. One, thwack. And they all get hit. Two, thwack. They would have been given 40 minus 1 because 40 was the maximum the law allowed and 39 was considered mercy that they would give them. And it would rip the skin right off your back and lay you open. Blood would have been flowing from these young guys. We think that John might have even just been like a teenager at this point. Whipped, beaten. And what, is he, what does the devil want here? Submission. Capitulation. St- Stop preaching in the name of Jesus. You're going to hear me this time? And I like to think that they were tossed right back into the temple where everybody could see them. This is what happens to people who preach in the name of Jesus. Fine, if you're not going to listen to reason, we're going to get physical. Guys, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to wear the uniform, there's going to be attacks that come. You know what Peter would write years later? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, writing to a church that was not as... Not as Old, not as grounded as the one in Jerusalem. He's writing to those in the diaspora, on the edges, who are just now beginning to experience persecution. Peter, what's going on? This is crazy. He wrote them in 1 Peter 4, 12-14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I feel like we tend to think that, don't we? When someone comes out with some diatribe against the church, we were shocked. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Oh, I get this picture in my mind. They're being, they're being hauled out to be beaten. I wonder if they were afraid because they thought, the Lord just sent an angel to set us free. What's he going to do? What's going to happen? All right, we're going to let you go, but first take them out, 40 minus 1. Wait, what? And now they're taken out. And I wonder if they were, Lord, Lord, what's going on? What's happening? And if they're all getting beaten, the stripes are coming. People used to pass out from this, and then they would revive them so that they would experience the full pain of their beating. I wonder which apostle it was who first said, Hey, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, They're going to take you into the synagogues. And they're going to revile you. And they're going to cast you out. And they're going to beat you for my name. When that day comes, what did Jesus tell them to do? Rejoice. Rejoice. We know later on Paul and Silas would be in prison and they'd start to sing. I, I like to think they started to sing here. Or if they, even through their pain, even through their tears, even through their cries, that there's laughter. Because like, he was right. He was right. 
Everything he said is right. And he said that he would give us the strength to endure. And he said that when this pain came, that great would be our reward in heaven. We're counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. And they throw them out. Guys, 39 lashes on the front and on the back. They would have hardly been able to stand. Crawling their way out of the temple. The church sees them. How do you think Peter's wife felt when she saw him? I heard you escape from prison. What happened? And they're rejoicing. What do they, what do, they do? They don't want us to preach anymore. What are you going to do? We're going to go preach tomorrow morning. And this is the first time we see that word evangelize in the book of Acts. When it says that they were preaching that Jesus is the Christ, the word in Greek is evangelizomai. It's the word that we get evangelized from. They did not cease. They continued. You can't stop men like that. You take somebody and you flay their back and chest open and they show up the next day and keep going. What do you do with somebody like that? You can't stop them. You can't bribe them. You can't intimidate them. You can't make them afraid. This is what is so strange to me when people talk about Christians being wimps. And Christian, it's, just, it's for soft people. Friedrich Nietzsche, that was his whole deal, right? It's for soft people with their soft ideas. It does not take a soft person to stand and be beaten like this and stand up and keep going the next day. Bound and bandaged and maybe barely able to stand. Maybe they had to sit and preach the next day. They probably expected that they were going to get their heads taken off the next day. Maybe they were going to be crucified next. They kept going. You cannot stop men like that, and you cannot stop men like us if we can be wise enough to live like they lived, to follow in their train like we sang about, to carry the light of the gospel. We read at the beginning, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Continuing that passage, But evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. Isn't that how it feels? Bad to worse. Deceiving. And being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. As for you, continue. Keep going. There's a quote from my my old professor Dave Early. You talk about bad people going from bad to worse. You ever look at the country and you just lament, what happened to us? Where did we go? What happened to virtue? What happened to the gospel? What happened to anything. You think, oh Lord, how are we going to do this? How can we advance the gospel in a nation like this? And I'm going to read this quote from my professor. He said this, I think to myself, man, could it get any worse? Has it ever been any worse? And then I realized that the book of Acts was written during a time and about a time when the world was worse. Morality was worse. Values were worse. And yet a handful of people turned that world upside down. If they could do it, then by the grace of God, we can do it too. Lord, it's so hard. People hate us. All right. Sounds like it's time for the church to kick into gear, doesn't it? If you step into the fight as the apostles did, you're going to have your nose bloodied. Might not be physical. Might be. But these attacks, again, reveal the devil's weakness because he's trying to fight in the material because he can't fight in the spiritual. He can't stop you. You've got the Holy Spirit living within you. And the Sanhedrin kept on trying to get the disciples grounded to ignore the spiritual reality and focus on the political situation or focus on the, the, the dynamics of power in Jerusalem or focus on, look, let's just make a deal. We're, we're reasonable men. We can make a, a deal here. And the disciples kept their eyes on Jesus and they got their backs ripped open for it. 
That's what the devil does. He wants you to think on the physical, but that's where he wins. You can beat him if you resist in the spirit. You know, if the Lord tarries, we have a lot of life left. And this nation and the church in America, it will sway back and forth. We'll have days where everything is in sync and things are humming along and we're singing hallelujah, praise the Lord. And there are going to be days where we are diametrically opposed and we're scared and we're afraid and we're saying things like, my kids aren't going to grow up in the same nation that I grew up in. You know what? It's fine. The more we seek to stand on the gospel, the more opposition will come to us. Well, let the opposition come. Because if the enemy sees fit to do something about us, then we must be doing something right. Leonard Ravenhill used to say, I want my name to be famous in hell. I want my poster to be on the wall. That guy. Let's get that guy. I'll give a $10,000 reward for whoever takes down that guy. When the enemy opposes us, what do we do? We go right back to the Lord and we say, Lord, would you fight for us? Give us your power. Extend your hand to heal. Extend your hand to validate our message. Give us boldness. Give us power so that we can keep going out and rescuing the lost, the diseased, and the brokenhearted. Escalate the battle. And I'll tell you all, we are now at a time where it's not going to get any easier for you to ever preach the gospel or to learn the word or to go to church. That's not a threat. That's just saying it doesn't get any easier than it is right now. Nobody stopped you. You tell somebody, hey, I went to church today. They're going to be like, why are you telling me? I don't care. <laughs> there are places you say, I went to church today, and you're under arrest. So take advantage of it. Get out there. You, if we've got the advantage, then step up. You see your lane, go for it. You know, I was watching the football last night and watching uh, Lamar Jackson for the, for the Ravens. He'll be, he drops back to pass, but there's a hole. Boom, he goes, and no one can catch him. He sees his opening and he goes for it. Same thing for us as a church. If we've got an opening, let's go. Let's, let's go so fast and so far and see so many people come to Jesus that they've got to have a little meeting down in hell and say, we, we've got to put a stop to something here. I know the grand strategy is to make them all fat and lazy and not care, but these people are kind of like taking advantage of that and we've got to do something about it. Because then that's when we're going to see the Lord step up and work for us. Isn't that awesome?